This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. The young shining cuckoo is fed by its foster parents on insects and spiders. But the korimako, or bellbird, has a much more interesting diet of nectar. It's been something of a radio personality and has sung on shortwave radio to Australia and the Pacific nations for 30 years. However, the early recordings failed to reflect the versatility of the bellbird, with its wide variety of liquid notes and artistically placed clicks and bell-like sounds. It's not surprising that Maori mythology describes Korimako, the bellbird, as the messenger of Tane, sent to herald the coming of the sun. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or Chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Hello, friends. Today we have Jim O'Malley, the city councillor who has the chair of infrastructure services and the, um, is representative of the Otago Southland Regional Transport Committee. All, both of those are very important in a time of climate change. Also important in a time that we're only now starting to catch up with infrastructure. You can uh, podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to podcast and then going to community or chaos. Well, Jim, how have you found your time on city council, particularly the infrastructure committee? For the last few years. Well, thanks, Marvin. Thanks for having me on. Um, oh, kind of rewarding, and I think every time, every year that passes, you get a little bit more, a year's more experience, so you have an understanding of how the dance dances, and understanding that has a, long, a lot of big effect on whether you're productive or not, so I've enjoyed it. Looking forward to another two years. Okay. The City Council... Dillian City Council and many others, and until fairly recently, when I say recently, I'm talking about years, I'm not talking about months, um, have neglected their infrastructure, particularly electricity and water. Um, Aurora seemed to have more interest in paying dividends to the City Council than keeping up the uh, power poles and other infrastructures. Can you comment on this? Yeah, um, I'll start with Aurora. Um, Aurora, of course, is a council-controlled organisation, um, which means you've got a very much at arm's length control of what the company does. They went to a maintenance policy of um, effectively running a um, an asset till end of life as opposed to replacing it before it got to that point. The, the commentary around paying dividends, there was a council period there, and this goes back to the late 90s, so I definitely don't claim any association with that group, that were doing the I'll keep rates low stuff and basically taking far too much out of Aurora and dividends, which should have been going back into maintenance and renewals. And that came to a head like six weeks after I got on the council for the first time seven years ago when 
when um, the poll issue came to the fore and it really couldn't be ignored anymore. As a consequence, Aurora had to go under a massive amount of debt to catch up on its infrastructure backlog um, and hasn't paid a dividend to the council since because of that, um, which is fine. We should always be looking at those sort of entities as, in my opinion, not making profit but providing the necessary infrastructure that you need. Isn't that the problem with not keeping infrastructure up? Doesn't it cost more in the long run? It does, but there has been a policy around the country, and this isn't just local government. Central government can be blamed as well. I mean, if you look at the roads, the you know the state highways, they're not in great condition either because you have a position where politicians are not comfortable or don't seem to have what I would call the spine to come back to the to the taxpayer and say the maintenance of infrastructure at this level is going to require this much money. And, you know, the irony of that is that we actually did come back in the last long-term plan and with the rates rises we're receiving now to say that if we're going to maintain the three water assets at the right level, this is the amount of money we have to put into them. And we didn't get hardly any pushback from the community. I think everybody agreed that you've got to maintain these things at a certain standard. What do you think about standalone enterprises? It seems like you have the responsibility but not the authority. Yeah, I mean, council-controlled organisations should be called council-owned organisations because the controlled part of it is pretty much illusionary. Um, and that's really my, that is my central issue with the whole Three Waters proposal is they will actually even have... I know people have talked about how the regional representation group will have mana whenua on it and therefore Māori are front and centre and other such things, but that regional representation group has even less authority and control over these water entities than the council does over Aurora. Now, what do, you, do these standalone enterprises also have a um, habit of bringing in contractors at sometimes for advice and also work at sometimes big rates? Well, the, often that's that false economy of saying that we keep our staffing levels low and you can say that we'd have only this many full-time staff on board, but then the consequence usually is that you have to bring in contractors to fill in your staff gap. They always come in at an incredibly high expense, and and the bad part of that too is that the contractor, the actual person, is usually not getting that money. It's the company that's getting the money. So, yes. I have a friend who works in government, and they say that um, you lose institutional knowledge when you contract out too much and you really probably lose money in the long run. Um, that's that's an absolute fact. I was in a room not that long ago where we were talking about basically, well, I think staff are looking at councillors and saying you guys are elected every three years and you have quite a high turnover. Therefore, we hold the institutional knowledge and I reminded everybody in the room that when I was in the room on this particular topic three years ago, only one staff member in the room now existed, the others had all gone. So in fact, the institutional turnover in a place like the council is quite high, and the consequence is you do lose a lot of institutional memory, and that means you often go back and start something again that you'd done, say, four years earlier, because no one in the room remembers that you'd done it. Okay, well, we might as well talk about the Three Waters reforms at this point. Can you tell us about the Three Waters proposals? Okay, so the root of the Three Waters reforms and the proposals goes back to the Havelock North um, 
Kemplerbacter outbreak, where basically um, f- for the first time in 20 years a reticulated system had failed um, and it had not been monitoring its water properly and they delivered basically dangerous water to the people of Havelock North. So, and, and three people died and thousands got sick. So it was a terrible outbreak. Um, the consequence of that was the government then set up a commission of inquiry to look at it, and out of that commission of inquiry came a reform process that said that primarily we need to take the standards, water standards, up another level. We need to take the regulator out of the district health boards and we need to set up a standalone regulator, and that standalone regulator is Tomata Arawai. And then, and this is where the contention starts really, because up to this point everybody agreed that that was a better way to do it, Um, then the issue of will councils be able to pay for the necessary upgrades to get their systems in place? And this is really the contention sits right now. All the large councils have turned around and said we can easily meet those upgrade requirements. And some of the small councils have said, no, we'll be in a lot of trouble. And the consequential plan that the government put up with was to say, okay, we'll set up these water entities. At the start, there was going to be as many as eight. Now we're down to four. And the, and the assets will transfer out of the council control to these entities. And then Dunedin and Christchurch, through their water rates, will subsidise Gore, um, Central Otago, Queenstown Lakes, Buller, um, for what would be a standard water rate across the country. Um, many of us pushed back and said, to be honest, the loss of localism by doing that will be a far bigger cost to the community than any of the savings you'll get through your efficiencies. And that these efficiencies look, as described, look a lot like electricity reform. And we started this very show out with Aurora, didn't we? Well, electricity reform is actually seen uh, over time. It's probably improved somewhat, but the cost of electricity has gone up a lot immediately. Um, I understand three waters, there isn't supposed to be um, profit, but certainly electricity is a huge dividend for those who are invested in it. Even if you took the dividends out, though, it's still not producing it any cheaper than it was when it was under the so-called Soviet model. <laughs> no, what <laughs> I'm know. saying is that actually the cost of electricity for the average consumer has gone up. Yeah, very much so. And in other um, words, the reform didn't fact, deliver. Much higher than inflation. And... And also, we're looking at things like the Lake Onslow battery scheme because we simply can't operate the water correctly on the Waitaki scheme because now we've got two operators running out of the Southern Lakes and the Waitaki. And, and in the days of the Ministry of Works, the Southern Lakes were used in that very same way that the Onslow scheme is going to be used. So in other words, bringing the free market into energy, especially hydro energy, where you've got to make sure every drop of water does its job, um, has completely backfired. Yeah. Is it, why isn't anybody saying the emperor's got no clothes on? Well, I wouldn't say nobody's saying it, but, but I'm politi- saying it. But um, the politicians mostly aren't saying it. I, I would I would say that the central politicians are probably suffering from the same issue that we might suffer at the local level. We don't write our own reports; the staff write the reports, and then we read them. And whether you know what's in front of you is good or not will depend on how much extra homework you're willing to do outside that. If you take a cabinet briefing paper as being an absolute truth, then your position that you're going from will start from there and continue from there. Don't a lot of political parties, including 
the main political parties and politicians and also staff members, especially staff members that came on in the 90s, have a vested interest in neoliberalism. Not so much that they're making money out of it, but they have an emotional interest in it. And it's really hard to say you might have been wrong. Um, you know, I think a cultural association might be the way to describe it, and that is that, and I've actually said, when this first came out, Three Waters Reform, it was way back in 2019, so it's it's almost four years old now. Um, and I said at the time, this looks like the second generation of employees from Treasury continuing on with what the older generation in Treasury started with the Roger Douglas years. And if you think of those institutions in government, Treasury, Department of Internal Affairs, they hire, like every organisation, you hire people that you think think like you. So if you have a, a belief that the free market has a central role to play and then you hire your new and up-and-coming people, well, eventually they become the new managers and they've still got that belief. So I do believe, I agree with you, that it's very entrenched in government policy. And by government policy, I don't mean Labor or National, I mean... Treasury, Department of Internal Affairs, and other such people. Treasury got an interesting history because they had an educator, uh, a Treasury secretary, and an educator, a wife who was an educator, and they taught freedmen supply-side neoliberal economics for years before Roger Douglas came along. And mm-hmm. they all didn't pay any attention to them, so they were frustrated with him. Uh, there were plenty of reasons to dislike him, but that wasn't one of them. It's a strange irony when you look back and you go, I wouldn't mind Muldoon back as Prime Minister. But I think the reality was that national government was the last of the governments that reflected the 1930s um, Labour government. And the fourth Labour government was, I've always said it, uh, it was effectively a betrayal to us who voted Labour. But the thing is that this isn't just locally. It didn't happen violently in New Zealand. But it happened in Chile, it happened in Russia, and it happened in throughout Latin America. It's called the Washington Consensus. Well, obviously what you would try to do is do it as unviolently and easily as possible. So if you set it up that it fits with the society, you'll get the outcome you're looking for. Some would say, in fact, Chris Trotter's just written an article on this about Three Waters. There's some interesting things in the Three Waters debate that have got to be really looked at with caution, and one of them is... um, keeping the books separated from elected officials. This will be the first time a large regul- a large um, entity that provides infrastructure will have no democratic oversight at all on it. And, and it's interesting that standards and pause were involved so early when you talk about the Washington Consensus. Um, they were talking to the Department of Internal Affairs as soon as Havelock North occurred. And this structure, as Chris Trotter points out, is very much setting these institutions up to fail with debt and you've removed all um, all democratic oversight of them so when they fail, which they will in about 20 years time based on their structure right now, they're very likely to um, there'd be almost nothing in the way of stopping you privatising it and people will say oh but look at all the privatisation clauses in the water services entity bill I would remind all those people that Section 130 of the Local Government Act, which precedes this, has a prohibition of privatisation in it, and in order to pass the Water Service Entity Bill, a government with simple majority struck down that provision. 
a government in the future can simply strike down the provisions in the Water Services Entity Bill and then it could be privatised. In other words, it's continuing. <laughs> Why was there not more opposition to this and more debate about on these particular matters? I have a feeling that what happened was that, that two large two large things for the voter to consider appeared on at the same time, and that is the water services stuff and the formation of the entities actually started under the last year of the National Party. And at that point, it was just a straight-out economic issue. But then when Labor got in, Minister Mahuta brought up co-governance, and co-governance and then the water reform became two interlinked activities. And then over time, some of the people who opposed the Three Waters were making statements against co-governance, and then they became so intertwined that if you opposed Three Waters at any level, you became known as a person who also was not behind co-governance at all and therefore was against Māori. And that, that conflation of the two caused, in my opinion, an inability to debate it from any point on. As I understand it, the council about three years ago, maybe two before the last local body election voted, to support the local government opposition to Three Waters by one vote and then change their vote to withdraw from opposition to the Three Waters. Can you talk about this? And what was the place in the mono defendant way in this? Because the, the reason they gave for changing it was that they were offending Mari. Uh, in the press. Yep. Um, boy, that's that's a lot to cope in, in less than an hour. Um, I'll go a little bit further back. So the official representative group of, of local government is Local Government New Zealand, and they signed a memorandum of understanding without going back to consult with their members that they would support Three Waters reform. And so a lot of councils were like, hang on, how come we just got and behind the support through our, in, through our lobby group without you talking to us, and we don't agree. So there was a lot of people around the two, you know, the motu or namotu, um, trying to figure out what to do next and setting up Zoom meetings, talking to each other. So I was on one of those. Um, Gary Moore, the ex-mayor of Christchurch, has a thing in, up there called the Tuesday Club, which is a political meeting. Um, and on, the, on one of those nights, I was there... Ian Pottinger, who's the Chair of Infrastructure at ICC, um, Pauline Cotter, the Chair of Infrastructure at Christchurch City Council, and Eugenie Sage, the Green MP, were all on a panel that Gary was talking about, Three Waters, and then out of that we came, well, we're going to have to organise in some way or another. Um, and then we started joining a bigger group of people on Zoom, and that group became known as the Communities for Local Democracy. And it had in it members who were saying things that I'm like, you guys have got to stop saying these things. Um, Bruce Smith on the West Coast had said he was concerned about the fact that, that Māori make up 15% of the population would make 50% of the boards. And I'm like, Bruce, that's, that's not going to help if you're saying this because you're going to get caught up in this whole thing and you're going to get called a racist. And it did. And so C4LD got labelled as being racist. So people like me, Eugenie Sage, well, she wasn't a member, but, you know, Gary Moore, the lifetime Labour Party member because of his role as a, as a Liberal Labour mayor, we all started getting called racists. 
because we were associated with this group that had been given that title. And so in the end, when this came down to the wire, the vote was no surprise. Um, one councillor didn't turn up to the meeting and another councillor abstained, and therefore the vote went in the other direction. I'm still stand by the vote that I did because C4LD's opening line was they supported co-governance. Um, but that, uh, that line was ignored and, in fact, it was thrown back at them as saying that you didn't speak to Māori sufficiently early enough, to which um, the Mayor of Waimakariri, who was the spokesperson for the South Island part, said, we've only been in existence six weeks and we still only haven't got to talk to the Minister. But anyway, that wasn't enough. And so that was it. That was the voice. That was the only voice because LGNZ would not do it. That was the only voice of organisation between councils. And slowly but surely it was dismantled over the South Island. Mm. The irony of it is that now we've got a change in Prime Minister and Labour is trying to figure out how to get away, how to get its way up in the polls. It's probably going to sacrifice co-governance. But the um, the objections to the Three Waters reform proposals, how do you think, what, what, where would that go? Would they, would they just get rid of the co-governance and then put forward the, the rest of it? Well, if I do that, then we're back to where National was proposing. But you've got to remember, this isn't National or Labor. This is the Department of Internal Affairs and Treasury doing this. So we'll be back to that point, which... At least, if we got to that point, we'd be able to cleanly talk about the economic model and not have to be called any slurs in the process if we go through it. But I would like to see co-governance brought back in. Um, and again, it would be best it would be best if we can do that at the local level. And and I I am sort of working on exploring that now. It needs okay. to be there eventually. But it's all across all of government. I think this is the thing. People think this would only be three waters. Co-governance will have to be across all actions of government. This is one of the things that um, I think the communication, not only on three waters, but in co-governance, hasn't always been at the best. Because people understood, maybe mistakenly, that they could opt out of three waters. And then they found out they couldn't. And when people talk about three co-governance, they don't say what it is, really. They don't say um, that we don't have a real discussion about it. And it's difficult to have a discussion. Yeah, there's lots of things that get in the way of a good discussion. And also, I would, I, from my experience, just listening to people speak, um, there's no actual definition of what co-governance would look like, so everybody has their own version of what they think it would be. Well, that's a problem, isn't it? Well, that's a big problem because you're not talking about what it is and, and how are you going to, you know, how are you going to achieve it and what is the objective. Um, and I think that we've got another issue that has become more prevalent in New Zealand, and I'm not sure to what extent social media plays a role there, and that is people take positions before they even start the argument before they start the discussion. And they're looking for keywords. And if, you, if, if, if the opposition says a keyword the other side's looking for, they go, see, that proves you are that kind of person. And so the debate has got quite superficial, um, and that's dangerous when you're trying to get something as complex and as nuanced as co-governance will have to be. All right, I'll play some music, and then we can come back. Cool. Thank <laughs> you.
down to find him He's wandered through the moving of mountains Making a break He's unpredictable As strong as the chains out to bind him This is his country Will of the people's his name A fearsome fill of drink Might just get him talking He's even suspected of lending a helping hand A sad state of affairs They say once got him walking And if it's fighting for rights Will of the people's your man Come on, you're strong, come on, you're feeble Where can I find that will of the people? Come on, speak up now if you can Where can I find that man? Come on, you're strong, come on, you're feeble Where can I find that will of the people? Come on, speak up now if you can Where can I find that man? Where can I find that man? They say he once fought off an army that threatened to chain him Through false political profits out on their ears But when times got hard there were too many too ready to blame him And the next we knew Will of the people disappeared Come on you're strong Come on you're feeble Where can I find that will of the people Come on and speak up now if you can Where can I find that man Come on you're strong Come on you're feeble where can I find that will of the people? Come on and speak up now if you can. Where can I find that man? Where can I find that man? We're talking with um, Jim O'Malley, uh, city councilor in charge of infrastructure, and we've been talking about Three Waters and other local body issues. You can podcast this by going to oar.org.mz, then going to podcast, and then going to community or chaos. What would you like to see happen to improve New Zealand's water systems? That's a good question. Um, again, you've probably got to look at the three waters. So in terms of drinking water, the drinking water standards in New Zealand are pretty good, and Dunedin has always operated around the 98 99% compliance. Um, and all we really needed to do to sit with the new compliance systems is basically um, update our asset management plan so we knew we were doing our renewals right. And we put another $7 million a year into operating costs, and now we're compliant, fully compliant with the new systems. That's going to be a bigger challenge for the smaller councils, so I would like the government to go back again and look at the challenge council by council and have a very in-depth discussion about really what the gaps are. 
I really genuinely do not believe we need to form these entities. I think the answer would be to basically fix the smaller councils, tell them now to stay to new standards, and set up cooperative order authorities. And by that, we could achieve all our objectives. Um, if we go down the route they're going to go down, I actually think we won't, object, we won't achieve any of them. And you can see that in what will be the council submission on the last act going through Parliament right now, which is in select committee. And on Wednesday, we vote on our letter of um, um, commentary on that. And the opening line is that, is that the legislation is fundamentally flawed. And that's coming from our technical teams at the council at this point. All right. Why do you think, it seems to me that many people feel that government and political parties are out of touch with, with their needs. Uh, how does this happen? It's interesting. I think I made this observation years ago looking at elections back in the States, actually, where I was in Connecticut, which was a strongly democratic state. And it became obvious to me that a person being elected they weren't getting the reason they became elected was they had to go through a step first, which was they had to go through the selection panel to be put up as the representative. And actually, winning that selection panel was the determinant of whether or not you were going to be in the House of Representatives because the voter always voted along that party. Now, we have that in New Zealand, especially with the MMP, where you've got list votes that if, if a person is doing well inside the party, they'll be given a safe place on the list or they'll be given a safe electoral seat to contest, which means the democratic process they're going through is not with the, not with the general public, but it's with the selection committees of their party. And that will have a, a tendency to eventually cause a very big inward-thinking activity, which means then you could argue, it's not hard to see then, that the politicians will, could, could easily become out of touch with their voting populace. Well, what do you do about that? Because MMP, proportional representation, is actually probably more democratic, and it certainly is more democratic than the American system. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I'm not by any means imagining we should throw it out, the baby out with the bathwater. But we should probably be putting those parties under, when we give the party vote, we should be actually saying, are you genuinely representing us, or are you a theoretician who gives a theoretical response, but you don't? really follow us and I guess out of that I'll go back to my high school years in history where we were taught the concept that all parties slowly but surely move to the right and we haven't had a major party I know we've got the Greens but we haven't had a major party like Labour appear on the scene since the 1930s and there's a vacuum appearing on the left now. There was an article in the Guardian the, the uh, British Guardian mm -hmm. National Guardian Talking about political parties and saying that um, the on one part uh, the conservative parties were mainly made up of of finance and business people, particularly finance, mm -hmm. and um, which is sort of like treasury in a way, <laughs> and the um, so-called social democratic uh, parties. The uh, the um, of the um, middle were mainly made up of people who've been through university, went into politics, or went into the bureaucracies, and never experienced the life of ordinary people. And you have found very few um, 
ordinary people um, made it into Parliament in, across the board, particularly in the English-speaking country, but in European Union as well. So you had one side, mostly many technical experts, well-educated well people, and then you had uh, financiers and business on the other side, but very little in the way of representing, let's say people gone from the union movement from the bottom, not for the university. Mm -hmm. And uh, the divide between the representatives and the represent <laughs> and the, those represented has grown considerably over the last 40 years. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I would agree with that. Um, if you look back, and okay, so really on the right, there's probably not been much change because it's always been that group that's been about protection of their wealth and other such things and the belief that the free market will give you the objectives you're looking for. But on the left, if you go back the last hundred years of the Labour Party, at the start it was full of coal miners and 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 tram drivers and, and, and basically working people who became self-educated and could speak economics at a very high technical level, but they knew what it was like to work a shift and they knew what actually the minimum wage was like because they'd lived it. Um, and then over time, people with tertiary education became more and more involved in the party and I think it was welcomed at first, it was probably welcomed all along and I, there's no doubt that those people have the, the interests of the country at heart, but they don't have that visceral understanding of having lived out these policies and I think when you get to that point you run into what I think we're running into now which is a theoretical position which sounds right on paper but fundamentally when it's run by people who have to live by it they're going but you've forgotten this and you've forgotten that and you've forgotten this and we have created a culture of saying that's very well and good but I am the intelligent person in the room and I know the answer and, and then there is an actually ignoring of the grassroots, which again is why I'm saying that I think there's a massive vacuum appearing on the left and those people are currently not engaging because they don't find anything in those parties that they can associate with. All right. We've, we should have noticed over the last few, couple of weeks that climate change is here. is isn't a matter of mitigating it. Um, I mean, because the powers of be have refused to mitigate it around the world. Mm -hmm. But the results of climate change are here. So what do we do? How do we adapt? And how do we adapt in the interest of both the natural world and the people of New Zealand? Well, each of these could have gone a couple of hours. Um, there's no doubt it's here. It's good to finally see that even the deniers can't deny anymore because at least we've gone past that aspect of it. Although a lot of people in denial are now saying it's not us, it's natural, but at least they're well, acknowledging Well, they're also it. saying it's individual action. Recycle, um, drive an electric car, but don't bother pushing the oil company, the coal company. Don't bother with massive politics. Yeah, and, and, and that gets back to that individual rights kind of free market thinking that's dominating um, it's all of those things isn't it I mean you, you, you can't you can't have a governmental or a, or a large response and ignore the individual response but likewise you can't just do an individual response and not expect a governmental response so we need to set our systems up we need to 
we need to aim first thing you need to do is genuinely aim from carbon neutrality and and that cannot be a theoretical one and you can't spend too much time planning i mean my main complaint inside the council dcc with our carbon neutral policy is we've taken forever to get our first step off the ground and we haven't got time to plan anymore we've got to start acting um and I think the other one is you have to simply say to people who don't want to do this anymore, we can't wait on you anymore. We've got to do it. So we need to get our energy, energy policies centred around getting carbon out of our energy. We need to get our transport systems around making them as efficient as possible. Um, our environmental systems around environmental waste, again, not not being wasteful, not, not producing too much at the front end. But a lot of this requires the central government. I mean, people have said, oh, you know, I can't deal with all the stuff coming towards me because the packaging, I have no control over it. And you're quite right. But the government does. And it could put that in trade treaties and other such things and simply say, we won't tolerate this kind of packaging anymore. But that takes a level of braveness, which I just don't see out there. It's a bit sad, isn't it? All right. Well, so how do we... We're probably going to see rising sea level. We're probably going to see more storms like we've seen this mm -hmm. week. How do we get, prepare for that? Well, there's multiple steps you'll take. So there is... The Ministry of Environment does actually have a fairly good strategic approach to whether you stay or whether you go and that sort of stuff because part of it is don't live in places that are going to always be under hazard so we've been allowing far too much building on floodplains we've built a lot of i mean a lot of towns got built right on a floodplain because they're a little country town great farmland so the farms all went in there and someone put a town in the middle of it which unfortunately was usually about two meters above the river and so Kelso is a good example back in the 1990s it got hit by three floods in a row and the ministry works lifted the town up and moved it out of the floodplain. Um, we're going to have to do a lot of that stuff. We're going to have to look at where the natural hazards are, whether we can or cannot deal with them. That, along with don't contribute to it anymore by basically putting any more CO2 in the air. So there's two activities. One is the presence of the carbon dioxide is causing these large weather events. It will take, even if we stopped it tomorrow, it would take at least 100 years to rectify itself. So we've got at least 100 years of bad weather if we started tomorrow. And if we don't, and I know that humanity really can't be trusted, <laughs> so it, we, won't, we won't deal with the carbon dioxide for at least another 20 or 30 years, which means this is only going to get worse. So we have to say, what are you going to do with these gigantic weather events when they hit? Well, the trouble with 30 years is you, get, you lose control of the, the ability to stop. We may kill ourselves. I mean, I know that sounds ridiculous to say, but... We are a small player, and we are probably acting more progressively than some of the bigger players. And until those bigger players suffer some major events, which they will soon, they won't come into line. Only when they actually feel they need to will they come into line. And only when that happens will we actually get the outcomes we're looking for. But but that is not an excuse to not act at our level now. Actually... We talk about being uh, a leader in the South Pacific in some ways, and we talk about our nuclear-free policy. Can we be considered a moral ethical leader unless we actually do cut carbon? If we actually, you know, put our actions where we our mouth is. Well, be 
hard to, wouldn't it? Um, I think when we're talking about cutting the carbon, we need to make sure, though, we're doing it in a way that we are aggressively going after that reduction of carbon target. Um, but we've got to, again, be very careful that we're not going to step into, say, a whole of political correctness and actually think that somewhere we're going to change the whole transport system of the city over to bicycles. But we're not. But we could actually make sure the city is a 10-minute city where we set up planning structures so that you can use bicycles. You know what I'm saying? This is a subtle difference between the two. And if you go to a purist, you end up doing nothing because it's too much to go. It doesn't even have a practical outcome. And so you righteously sit there and you watch the planet burn. We've got to actively go after the fact that the carbon dioxide is getting up there and we've got to pull it out now and stop putting it up. Would you, what would you do about public transport then? Do you think it's handled well? If I could get, again, the, the reason we have bad public transport in Dunedin is the central government's position on public transport. And every time I've raised that with the MPs, they don't want to go there. So the Land Transport Management Act has in it clauses that do not allow cities to run their buses. Those clauses have to be taken out. And the other thing that has to be taken out is the private cause. The, you know, a city is not, the ORC is allowed to do the transport planning, but it's not allowed to own the buses. DCC is not allowed to do the transport planning or own the local buses. They must be owned by private companies. That's an absurdity. I know that Wellington Regional Council and I think Wellington City Council has actually proposed that the buses should be owned by the city. It would be so much more sensible if they were. Um, again, this was a... Again, did you like, did you like electricity reform? How did, what did you think about public transport reform? It didn't deliver anything except the worst service. Well, actually, I think that um, energy reform and public transport reform may have done something. I think it may have moved um, the uh, resources, partic- monetary, particularly monetary resources, from the many to the few. Well, it's certainly true that Richie's was a very small local company in the North Island before this, and now they are providing the public transport in most of the cities. Now, I wouldn't say that means Richie's are a good or a bad company, but it certainly does mean that that, that wealth transfer definitely did occur. Um, but I, you know, I'll go back to my role on the City Council as infrastructure where transport sits, and those of who are listening out on the peninsula who had kids that went to Bayfield or Tahuna We couldn't sort out getting the kids to school on time because of the public transport operating model and the fact that the ORC was running the buses. Whereas if that had been a DCC bus line, we would have just said, look, put an 8.30 bus out of Portobello out there. It's quite literally would have been the answer and it would have been done in a few days. What about uh, transport regionally? I mean, they're not... People are talking about electric planes, but they're not going to have carbon-free planes, uh, particularly for long distance and for large numbers of, for heavy, uh, large numbers of passengers. Um, in my future, certainly, I suspect it won't be in your future either. Mm. Um, when you come to transport, so you've got moving people and you've got moving freight, the first thing I would start with in terms of carbon targets is freight. Um, and I think it's almost a 50 to 1 reward if you put it on a rail versus having it on the road. This is one of the things where I think I, I, I like Muldoon about. You couldn't, if you went over a certain distance, I think it was 50K, or it might have been 50 miles back then, hmm. you had to put it on 
transport. The way you have containers now, it's not like you have to unload a railway wagon and put it on a truck and vice versa. You just have to, if you provide the right infrastructure, all you have to do is switch a container to a truck and into a train. Yeah, which is what's called a, a freight transport freight transport modality or an inland port is the other name for them. They're all over the country. We don't have one in Dunedin, and I really want one built down at Melbourne, just north of Milton, for that very reason, that to finish the journey to port should be done on rail. If you can get, you should be able to get the transfer costs down so that actually, actually it is. If you're 50 kilometres or further out, the fuel saving costs pay for the transfer cost. Um, that rail rule backs, goes back all the way to the Savage government, and Muldoon's was the last government that allowed it to exist. And then, then the fourth Labour government came in, and the rule was got rid of because transport companies wanted it got rid of, and it killed rail. But now we know rail is needed. Um, when Kaikoura hit and the main trunk line was taken out, the CEO of Main Freight said, restore the rail before you restore the road. Because <laughs> we need it. We can't survive without it. So we know it's needed and it needs to be given the right status. And then in that, you could be replacing some of that air mm-hmm. movement with rail movement. What about water movement? Not bad. Um, but honestly, actually, if you can do it by rail or water, you do it by rail. It's still more efficient. Um, but everything's more and efficient than air. you can electrify rail if you want to, can't Yes, you, you can electrify rail. Yeah. Should we? Well, the main trunk line in the North Island was completely electrified except for, <laughs> get this, except for the last 50 kilometres in Auckland. They had to actually transfer the train over to a diesel electric to finish the journey. And why in God's name would you do a thousand or so kilometres of rail electric and then not do the last 50? You know, bicycles work for younger people, but once you get in your 80s, and you, people are getting older, they're not younger. Um, even electric bicycles may become too much for many people. Mm-hmm. So is bicycles really a solution for transport, or is it one of those solutions? Well, I, I would always refer to an integrated transport network is what you need to build. So you need to have the capacity to do cycling, walking, private use cars and public transport vehicles like trains and buses. And the idea is that they're supposed to service in their totality the outcome you're looking for. If, if you put one above all the others, then you are, then you're got, it's not an integrated system anymore. So if you say cycling will displace all cars, that's almost as outrageous as saying all cars should be allowed on the road and no cycle lanes, because neither can be the, the, top, the totality of it. But for many people, it isn't public transport. The, can public transport in the city size of Dini be good enough so you don't have to wait more than 15 minutes, mostly? In the right zone. So we're concentrating heavily on the Mosgirl Green Island corridor. Yeah. Um, out of the south every day now we get 15,000 car movements in and 15,000 car movements out so we've already got large volumes of traffic and the buses in Mosgill now are 15 minutes apart they may even be 10 minutes apart now every time a new bus gets put on under the new fares because it's only $2 return now um, it fills up because people are realising that they can get into town a little slower and when we put the express buses on it'll be just as fast as a car 
they don't have to deal with parking in here and it's only $2 return which means their total transport bill for the week was $10 well if you find me a car that's petrol driven that can be filled up for $10 after 10 after five return trips for Mosgirl I'd like to know that car yet the main north south the Normandy line is actually in St. Clair is actually you have to wait longer now than you did a year ago that's largely because we're doing things like not paying drivers enough, so we're having recruiting problems with, with, with the staff as much as anything else. Um, and that came out of the back of COVID. They're trying to bring back... I mean, I have to say, I have to confess, I'm not completely over top of what the OIC is doing because it's obviously another council. Um, but my feeling there was that there's staff shortages, and if there's staff shortages, then you've got to have a recruit... You've got to ask, what's my recruitment problem? Okay, the last... Thing I wanted to talk, and we've got about six more minutes. Okay, is finance. I, for many people, um, they don't really own their home or haven't paid off the mortgage until they're close to retirement, and then they're on a fixed income, and the cost of the capital value of the house would maybe triple. Or, uh, or you're talking about that's if you're lucky. If you're if you live in a major city in New Zealand, it's, you know, maybe it's gone up mm-hmm. 20%, 20 times. And you have to pay rates on that. And you've lived in the neighborhood, you're in a large part of your life. You're, uh, you're, the things you need are there. Your social life is there. Yet you may have to move just because you can't afford the rates. Um, rates don't go up just because your house value went up. It's basically what happens is the city the city takes in about $150 million a year in rates, and then that's the numerator, and the denominator is the number of properties in the city and their total value. So if the whole city goes up threefold over a period of time, equally across the city, then your rates don't change at all. Um, it's your relative value of your property that would determine whether your rates went up or down. Now, what did happen in the last property increase in Dunedin was that South Dunedin, um, parts of North East Valley, um, Wakari, and, and areas that were traditionally relatively low-income areas and low-value houses went up more than, than the wealthy suburbs went up. And so they did have a rate increase that was higher but we saw that, so we actually changed the differential and brought that back down again to try to keep that the same. So the valuation of your house as a method for understanding what your rates obligations are going to be, it all depends on really where your house is relative to the rest of the city. But you, but you touched on something else at the start of your question, which I think you might be really touching on, and that is people who own property but are on fixed incomes may have a lot of trouble coming up with those rates bills, the payment of those rates. Um, and we are we don't have any what well, we do about a third of our income comes in in fees and charges so when you go get something done at the council there is a cost recovery on getting that done and the idea is to keep is to keep it over there so it doesn't sit over there on the general rate for people who are not doing that stuff otherwise it would hit them even harder um, do all countries use rates for local bodies? Largely. I mean, when I was in Connecticut, my local taxes were 15000 a year. And I became very on a fixed income. I got laid off. I was on a, only on an average income of 30000 and half of it was going out in my local rates. It actually caused me to have to leave eventually. Um, 
there you have to pay for the schools and the police as well as um, and the fire department. So their rate, that's why their rates are so high. It's why, an old method. Why rates as say as opposed to corporate tax and income tax? Uh, you'd have to go back and look at the legislation, but it'll be sitting under legislation somewhere as to how you can. Yeah, I realise uh, that. I mean, uh, theoretically, what you could say is we could take all the rates away and the government would collect that extra amount in the form of income tax and then and then give it back to the cities as a government take on the income tax. Well, that's what some Scandinavian countries do, and I believe that um, they also make it quite transparent and clear um, how the money is spent. And so, you know, to be honest, that would be, I would say, a fairer and more equitable way to do it. But again, you're asking a city council, and what you need to be asking is a central government politician, because ultimately they have defined the environment, and so we are confined under the statutes to only get it through rates. Which I agree, it hits the person who hits the hardest is someone who sits on a nice property that they've saved all their life up for and now their income has gone down because they've maybe retired or even like me, you had a change in your circumstances and now you've got the nice property and people are saying, well, you can still afford to pay the rates. It's like, no, I can't anymore. So that that linkage between the value of your property and your ability to pay is kind of a loose one. It generally works, but there are enough exceptions that maybe you want to consider doing it differently. Okay. Where are your hopes for New Zealand? Oh, just to stay on course, to be honest. I mean, I, I lived in the States for 25 years, and when I came back, I was disappointed to where New Zealand had gone. But the rest of the world's going worse in different places, so we're all right when we stand on the pantheon of it all. But um, I really, what I'm looking for is I want to see a, a new left of centre party arrive and re-embrace the things that made us strong, both socially and economically. Okay. Well, thanks a lot for coming on, and uh, we'll see you again uh, not too long from now. I'll be looking forward to it again, Marvin. Thank you very much for having me. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin, with support from New Zealand On the Air.